Chapter Thirteen of Murder Takes the Veil by Margaret Ann Hubbard. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Maria Therese. Chapter Thirteen. The convent building burned with light when the sheriff swooped up the drive in his big car. A dark red convertible was already in the parking lot, and the sheriff, seeing it, sprinted for the main entrance. That sporty beauty belonged to young Dr. Chapman. And on the one night I'd get romantic-minded and take Ermine to the movies, the sheriff muttered. His thoughts fled ahead to Kathy in her snug little room with Ivy Montgomery. Or was it so snug? Was something even now happening to terrify her, to make her remember that other night? The halls were as quiet as they had been a half-hour earlier, when the girls were divided into the hunters and the hunted, but with several differences. The sisters were once again on duty in full numbers. Each girl was in her proper room, and light was everywhere. Nothing was known, actually, of what had happened. A scout had stumbled upon Trillium and Mary Elizabeth in the hall near their own rooms, and the scout, who was Allison Cooper, had taken rightful alarm when she heard Stifle crying. In the glow of her flashlight, Allison saw Mary Elizabeth drooping limply, supported by Trillium, who appeared to be half-fainting herself, and both of them with their shirts smeared with blood. "'Turn it off!' Trillium begged, trying to shield her face from the light as Allison screamed. "'Mary Liz is murdered!' a girl whispered, and the words sped in a matter of seconds all through the black halls. Allison, as Mother told her afterward, was the only one who kept her head. With her flashlight pointing the way for her, she flew straight to where Mother Theodore stood at her office door, and Mother called the doctor and the sheriff. "'Now what else, Emmy?' Jarvis asked quietly. No reprimands, no blame for having allowed the hunt to go on, not even the obvious suggestion that the whole enterprise should have been explained to him beforehand, and his approval sought. Mother Theodore was grateful, so grateful that her throat tightened, and she stood with her hands tightly clasped under her scapular, her eyes on the floor like any one of her own charges called on the carpet. "'There is something more, Emmy,' the sheriff prodded, his voice still gentle. "'Tell me.' When she did look up, her distress was so intense that he added quickly, "'Oh, it can't be that bad.' I saw Trillium's costume tonight, Jarvis. Sister Raymond was packing it away with the others. Quickly now the words tumbled out. I thought it was Helen's. Trillium and Helen were both dressed exactly alike that night. It wasn't a tramp who killed Helen. It was someone who knew her, who thought she was Trillium. And I know I'm right, Jarvis. I couldn't be wrong, because there is no other explanation for Trillium's fear." For a long minute the two were silent, as if the room still echoed with the terrible truth. "'Yes, you're right, Emmy,' the sheriff said firmly. "'Trillium is the bull's-eye, not Helen, who looked like her, nor Mary Elizabeth, who got in the way. In here I've been trying to solve it from the wrong angle. I've dug into every friendship Helen ever made. I've questioned young Cooper till the poor guy's nearly nuts. I've rounded up more panhandlers than I thought we had in the whole state of Louisiana.' His voice dropped. But tonight, there were no panhandlers around. Emmy, when did you first notice that Trillium was afraid of something? 
Mother Theodore could not face what she believed. Her mouth tight, she walked around her desk, seated herself, and folded her hands upon the blotter. Jarvis leaned toward her upon the opposite side of the desk. Both knew the answer. She tried to run away on the night of the play, Emmy. We know that. Ermine Wagner insists that Trillian was deathly afraid when she made her come back. And what had happened shortly before that? His voice dropped even lower. The three geniuses had arrived upon the campus. She would tell me if... Mother hesitated. Trillium had not told her, even with urging. She asked desperately, Jarvis, why is she too much afraid to talk about it? What could be so dreadful that her life is in danger, and still she can't ask for help? The sheriff straightened and took a long breath. I don't know. I've been investigating those three very interesting pasts. But so far there is no indication of anyone doing anything but minding his own business. Tor spent the summer painting in the French Quarter in New Orleans. Archer was up in the Evangeline country, Eric hanging his hat someplace in N.O. All perfectly natural. Mother Theodore glanced toward the door. Here's the doctor now, Jarvis, she said. The young Marysville doctor stood in the doorway. Oh, hello, Sheriff. Well, I've looked them over, Mother, and they're both all right. Mary Elizabeth had a regular flood of a nosebleed and dripped over the two of them. Must have whacked her nose against that door she ran into. She has a broken rib, too, but it will mend. The other girl has nothing wrong with her that a couple of sleeping pills won't cure. I left something for them with the sister up there. So they ran into a door, did they? The sheriff queried. That's what they said. The door must have had a punch like Joe Lewis to do all that damage. Okay to go up and talk to them now, Doc? Oh, sure. I told the sister to hold the medicine till you'd seen the kids. I'll tell you, though, they aren't in a mood to talk. Oh, yes, they are, the sheriff declared. But when he and Mother Theodore stood beside Mary Elizabeth's bed and saw her lying like another young corpse, her lashes dark on her white cheeks and her breathing imperceptible, the stern sheriff melted into Kathy's father. On the other bed, which had been Helen's, Trillian was curled up, her eyes shattered with more than weariness, and her cheeks pink as if she had a fever. She had changed her gory shirt for pajamas and a pink housecoat, and to Mother Theodore she looked fragile, certainly not the possessor of guilty knowledge. Mother nodded to Sister Laurent, who had been sitting with them, and the sister went quietly out. The sheriff sat down on the bed beside Trillium, but he glanced at Mary Elizabeth. She's awake, said Trillium. She, I suppose she doesn't feel much like talking, but I'll tell you what happened, Sheriff. Fine, just let me ask you first where you were when this tangle with the door took place. In the clock tower, Trillium whispered. The hunters haven't the slightest idea of where we hid the fleece, because we were almost back here when Allison discovered us. So if you do have to go and look at it, please will you be terribly careful and not give away the hiding place? We'll lose the hunt if they find it. The sheriff seemed to be thinking this over. Mother knows I'm covering up, Trillium thought. She looked like the Sphinx, sitting there on that straight, steady chair. But even she couldn't know the reason. What are you afraid of, Trillium? He asked the question so quietly that Trillium very nearly answered. That was how easily she might give herself away. 
Her eyes fell to his hand, fuzzy, blue-veined, close to hers on the spread. If only she could grasp it, cling to it, and pour out the story. But no, no matter what happened. The whole thing was scary, Sheriff, sneaking through the dark with nobody knew how many people after you, and we didn't want them to catch us, particularly this year, when it's our last hunt. All right, you didn't want to be discovered, Jarvis said patiently. Young girls were far too clever, leading one briskly up to a blank wall, and then frisking blithely away. Trillium, he would have sworn on the Bible, was not afraid of the dark, and he was equally certain that she would never tell him. Now, what did you do? Where did you go? What did you hear? You know, everything. Trillium wanted nothing in the world less than to relive that awful time in the hall, the slow approach to the tower, the long ascent into the bell chamber. But it had to be done, and as she recounted it, she became certain that the awful presence of the sister had stalked there every step, pausing when they paused, so keenly foreseeing their movements that the ghostly progress was an echo of their own. Except for one time, when she and Liz had been in the alcove and heard the deliberate passing. What do you remember? the sheriff prompted. Trillian felt the quiet gray gaze upon her. The man was almost reading her mind. Nothing. It's all so confused. I mean, I was frightened, but who wouldn't be? I reached the bell chamber, and I set down the muskrat cage, and started back down the steps, and that's all, sheriff. That's all? Didn't you hear any sound on the steps below you? Why... Liz dropped a flashlight, and we couldn't see where we were going, and we banged into the door. That is, Liz did, and her nose began to bleed. That's all. Trillium waited, desperately hoping he would believe her. She had not mentioned Liz crawling up the stairs. If he could guess so much, might he not also guess that something stood in the doorway, cutting off their exit? There was one escape, and Trillium took it. Lying back upon Helen's pillow, she sobbed. I can't tell you anything more. Liz thought she heard a spy in the hall, and she started to crawl up the steps to warn me, and I turned on the flashlight, and then, then she tumbled down the steps, and we ran. The rest was a mumbled sobbing into the pillow. Sheriff Thatcher, recognizing the withdrawal tactics employed at times by his daughter, stood up, shaking his head helplessly his mouth grim. Mother Theodore was displeased. This was not like Trillium, this pillow-burring, crying, childish scene. Yet Mother couldn't find it in her heart to reproach the girl. Mother, Mary Elizabeth said, suddenly opening her eyes. Yes, dear, how do you feel? I'm all right, Mother, and it's just the way Trillium said. I thought I heard somebody in the hall, and I started up the stairs to warn her. And then she turned on her light, and I fell. I guess that's when I broke my rib. And then you ran into the door? The sheriff asked. Yes, sir. Had you left it open when you went into the tower? No, sir. Mary Elizabeth's eyes widened, and she choked back her reply. I don't remember whether I had left it open or not. But it was open when you hid it? Yes, sir. Who was in the hall? I don't know, Mr. Thatcher, said Mary Elizabeth truthfully. 
Together, Mother Theodore and Jarvis Thatcher stood at the foot of the bed, disarmed by Trillium's nervous state and Mary Elizabeth's guilelessness. There was nothing to do but leave, and they left. The moment the door closed, Trillium sat up. They're gone, Mary Elizabeth whispered after an interval. Yes, but Laurent will be back. I know. Mary Elizabeth pushed herself up on her elbow, gasped, and lay down. Holy smoke, that hurt. Trill, you didn't mention. I mean, did you see what I saw in the door of the tower room? Trillium nodded. It wasn't a teen, was it? No. I knew it wasn't. I was just hoping. She was so bundled up, and she... Trill, didn't she have man's trousers under her habit? Mary Elizabeth paused, but she needed no reply to that. I know she did, so it's the same one I saw by the bayou. Hush, Liz. Trillian bounded across the small space between the beds. Oh, listen, Liz, please don't tell about it. Well, I didn't, did I? I had promised to keep Mom, and didn't I just get through keeping that promise? I know, you were wonderful, Liz, and sometime I'll explain. Jiggers, Mary Elizabeth exclaimed. Sister Laurent came competently in with two medicine glasses, just as Trillian's bedspring stopped bouncing under the sudden return of its occupant. At the foot of the stairs, the sheriff and Mother Theodore paused. She's got to tell me, Mother, Jarvis insisted. The formality of the title meant that he was displeased. And I can't blame him, Mother admitted silently. I'm shielding that girl, perhaps foolishly, but I can't help it. I'm too fond of her. If it was anything less important than saving her own life, I'd give in. But I can't let this unholy killer go on with all the protection of secrecy. I'll leave her alone tonight, but tomorrow— Tomorrow you may have a different lead, Jarvis, Mother interrupted calmly. I don't question your responsibility in the matter. It's simply that I know what kind of girl Trillium is. I honestly believe you couldn't break her down. She has a great sense of honor and loyalty. If the danger was to herself alone, I think she'd tell you. In fact, I think she'd have told me before now. And since she hasn't, my guess is that she is protecting someone very dear to her. And who would that be? I don't know. An uncle seems to be her guardian. The sheriff sighed. For a long, wistful moment, Mother waited. All right, Emmy, he said. I'll see if I can come in by the back door. Heaven knows I don't want to torture that poor kid, but I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to get a woman to nurse that young Mary Elizabeth, and I want Trillium to move in with her and stay there. Or maybe you'd better put both the girls in Trillium's room. That way they wouldn't think so much about Helen. Anyway, in she goes. The woman keeps an eye on the two of them, understand? Mother Theodore winced. Never had she felt unsafe in St. Aurelian's. Sister Osmond will remain on duty. Sister Osmond, I could march a whole deputation of men in here in broad daylight, singing the anvil chorus, and none of you would ever know it. Sister Osmond's fine for legal entrances, but anybody could get in at any time. No, I'm going to take a few precautions, Emmy, quite a few. Who will the woman be, Jarvis? Glory Muckleroy. She won't want to leave her children. I'll talk her into it. 
the sheriff wheeled and started off along the hall to sister osmond's office from her he would get the uncle's address in a few minutes a call would be put through to new orleans and the thorough fingers of the law would begin to root into trillium's secret mother theodore walked slowly after the sheriff past her own office past the closed doors leading to the cloister when she came to the west stairs she went down into the tunnel and through it to the chapel the red sanctuary light was the only illumination in the beautiful vaulted place it was enough for mother did not need to see jarvis thatcher having secured the information he needed from sister osmond and passed it on to a deputy in marysville strode up the stairs again and along to the clock tower nothing there naturally but a flashlight lying on the floor sometimes he ruminated as he searched he would like to take mother by the veil and shake her but that of course was a purely defensive reaction not so darn funny either if it hadn't been for the fact that he believed her to be right about trillium's unshakable loyalty he would never have agreed to a roundabout stalking of his problems when he left the tower he did not pause again until he came out at the east door the night air felt good on his face Pausing for a long breath of it, the sheriff glanced down to the guest house. It had been dark, he was fairly certain, when he drove up. But now, late as it was, a lamp glowed behind a window with an undrawn shade. Archer, Eric, and Tolson, like a firm of lawyers, a writer, an athlete, and an artist. What were they? Into the office at Marysville had come a good many telegrams, one leading to another but all leaving gaps in the information he needed. At least one of the gentlemen, it appeared, had not been doing what his public assumed at a certain time in his past. One, and possibly another. But, of course, there would have to be proof. Standing there, looking over at the lamp in the window, the sheriff felt his forehead grow clammy in the cold night, and his pulse began to race unevenly, beating out a little Morris coat of its own. The three had come to St. Aurelian's at the same time, and shortly after their arrival, one girl had begun to look as if doom stared back at her, and another had been frightened to her death. No proof for it, nothing even to indicate it except that soggy footprint. Helen had been frightened to death, yet in her life there was no basis for fright like that, fright that could send her running out onto the hyacinths because even their treachery was better than what she ran from and so the only conclusion could be that the thing she ran from was so terrifying she knew it would be her death, the threat in its appearance rather than its meaning. And who or what could it have been? And what? The question followed naturally. What would be so horrible to Helen that she would run from it into the bayou, and that would also be so terrible to Trillium, who had not seen it? Or had she seen it? Not on the night Helen died, because Ermine Wagner had given her an alibi. But tonight? And why, above all, did Trillium conceal the reason for her fear? Glory be, the sheriff muttered aloud, dazed as if he had just received a blow in the midriff. But now he had it. Each time the killer had struck, he had come a little nearer to Trillium. Tonight he had almost reached her. The first time he had mistaken Helen for her. Tonight Mary Elizabeth had been in the way. Even should he kill mistakenly again, it would make no difference. He would try again. 
Jarvis wheeled to stare frantically back at the stone hawk behind him, at the dim arched cloister walk, the hidden garden, the chapel spire, pointing up to where the stars ought to be. Inside that old pile was Kathy, eighty-two Kathys, all infinitely precious, and their safety lay in his hands. What good would it do to install Glory Muckleroy as an unofficial guard? Anyone with the audacity to walk in among the hunters, even in the inky darkness of the halls, would not be turned back by a single watcher, or by a dozen. And the killer had knowledge that apparently could be pried out of no one. He knew exactly where Trillium and Mary Elizabeth were to be at a given time. The sheriff crossed the lawn, and his knock on the Muckleroy's kitchen door was peremptory. He paid scant attention to High's apologies about how he had locked up extra tight tonight, on account of the woman and kids being nervous over some wild tale that that there churn man had told. It took a good deal of persuasion to convince Glory that the children would survive the rest of the night without her. "'Listen, what are you afraid of, Glory?' Jarvis asked finally. "'Did something scare you tonight? Somebody around the house, outside, prowling?' "'Oh, nothing like that, Sheriff.' Just a notion, I guess, seeing all the goings-on over at the convent. Makes you feel spooky, it does. But if you need somebody to sit with that girl that was hurt, well, I guess I can make out alone. The sheriff, engrossed in his own mission, did not notice that Glory had given in almost too abruptly. And also he thought nothing of it when she called High into the pantry, ostensibly to tell him where to find the things for breakfast. But what she whispered out of the sheriff's hearing was a caution to High. Don't you go spillin' no part of what that there churn man said. He's all a killin', mark my words, and maybe even now he's sorry he told us, and we don't want no part of him gettin' into trouble. He's a mean customer with his winkin' and all. You keep a still tongue in your head, High Muckleroy. You hear me? I hear you, Glory, honey. He kissed her. There, now don't worry none about us. I reckon Addie Pearl and me's about as good a team as you'd find in double harness. So Glory accompanied the sheriff over to the convent and up to Trillium's room, where the two girls were now sound asleep. Between the beds, Sister Lawrence sat, a restful picture of a nun saying her beads. Glory, said the sheriff, drawing her back into the hall and closing the door. Glory, you are a sort of deputy, you understand. I'm putting you here to keep your eyes open and I want to hear about everything that happens. Everything, no matter how unimportant it may seem to you. I have to try it this way, you see, because the girls won't talk to me. Oh, they tell me what floats on the surface, but down underneath there's deep water. That's why I wanted you. They'll talk to you, where they wouldn't either to a sister or to me. Glory's troubled blue eyes met the sheriff's. All right, Mr. Thatcher, but I don't like it. Not that I'm scared, but I feel sort of dirty spying on the girls. Mother Theodore could have told them that all the spying in the world would do no good. But the sheriff said, It's the only way to help me, Glory. My daughter's here, too, you know. A few minutes later, Glory was sitting on the cot the sisters had provided for her in Trillium's room, and listening to the even breathing of the two she guarded for Glory was not deluded by the sheriff's need explanation about finding out things. She was a guard, and she knew it. The room was nice, crowded though it was with the extra bed for Mary Elizabeth and the cot for Glory. It had pretty furniture, 
and there were thin curtains and college banners and a bright rug. Exactly what Addie Pearl would admire to have. But Addie Pearl was safe, and all the nice things wouldn't half make up for it if she had to be scared all the time. Glory got up and examined the door. It had a good lock, the kind that turns with a knob on the inside and opens with a key from the outside. She turned it, satisfied that she and her charges were secure. She didn't know, of course, that several people had keys. Mother Theodore, Sister Laurent, and Rindy. Jarvis Thatcher, when he left Glory, paused in the dimly lighted hall and listened. Behind all the closed doors, girls were whispering, frightened. Down in the cloister, the sisters saying goodnight to one another would go into their separate cells to keep the silence until morning. It would be an attentive silence, and all of them, girls and sisters, would think of the sheriff as the bulwark between themselves and danger, a great perceptive brain, boring straight into the maze, solving their ominous problem. Yet here he stood, his great perceptive brain staggering from one bewildering phase to the next, and his most definitive response was anger, at himself, at the ghostly presence which could apparently come and go at will, unknown and unseen. And the presence lived, undoubtedly, right here on the campus. Inspired by wrath, the sheriff tramped down the stairs and out into the night. The lamp still shone from the guest house window when he crossed the lawn and knocked at the door. It was opened immediately by Crispin Archer, his thumb marking his place in a book, his horn-rimmed glasses giving him the aspect of a benevolent professor, his hair tousled and a purple tie loose under his collar. "'Too late for a visit, Mr. Archer?' the sheriff asked. "'Not at this house. Come in, Sheriff. Eric just got back from disporting himself at the movies. Sit down and we'll wag the chins a spell.' The sheriff, looking determinedly pleasant, followed his host into the living room. Already, before he was across the threshold, he had been handed Mr. Eric's alibi for the evening. By accident? Possibly. I rather expected to see Tolfelson by the fire, or... Oh, of course. He's in bed, eh? Jarvis seated himself in a large chair. No, the old duffer's over at his studio. He'll be plodding along pretty soon now. You're not here on business tonight, I hope, Sheriff. Eric was not in the room, but there were sounds coming from the back regions of the house. Jarvis's gesture made a molehill out of a mountain. Oh, woman's nervousness, Mr. Archer. The veil doesn't seem to make him any different, in some ways. The Lord may be watching over them with a special eye, but they still prefer the sheriff in an emergency. Archer smiled at this philosophy. And this was an emergency? Of a sort. Having some kind of hunt up there tonight, and all the lights were turned off, and a girl tangled with a door in the dark. Nothing to it, but Mother thought I'd better look into it after the other unpleasantness. Naturally. Crispin seated himself opposite the sheriff. By the way, how are you coming on the, ah, uh, other unpleasantness? Making progress, of course? Certainly, but I'm just about convinced it was some tramp that wandered in. A place like this is honey to a fly. Jarvis nodded toward the book which lay face down on the arm of Archer's chair. Reading anything good? Crispin's air of casual interest did not change. Byron, he's almost too good to be good, 
sometimes. The sheriff laughed appreciatively, although all he could remember of the great bard was that he had a game leg and had swum the Darndales. Franz, Eric, in pajamas and robe, his hair wet from a shower, appeared in the door. Hello, sheriff. Chris, where did you put my shoe shine outfit when you got through with it this morning? It's still on the back porch. Enjoy the movies tonight, did you, Mr. Eric? Jarvis inquired. Franz glowered. Putrid. Oh, well, of course, I'm easily entertained, but I thought that motorcycle race was pretty good. He waited for a reply, and Franz muttered, Lousy, before he disappeared. In a moment, they heard him slamming around on the porch. Crispin laughed. That's life for you, Sheriff. Franz goes hunting entertainment and doesn't get it, and I stay home and it comes to me. Did you see that fellow? What's his name, Burns? Goes around demonstrating a churn contraption. Burns and Taffy, said the sheriff. Say, I haven't seen him in a month of Sundays. Here today, was he? Put on a show in the barnyard. A fine dog he has. Yes, sir, Taffy's a fine dog. Burns came along tonight and sat here gabbing with me. You just missed him. Talk about a liar. That fellow's an 18 carat Ananias. The sheriff chuckled deeply. That's about right, Mr. Archer. You sized up Theophilus. Is he an old acquaintance of yours? Mine? Lordy, no. Where would I meet him? No, he came asking for Tor, and I was alone, so I had him come in. A great character. A character? That's Theophilus. Supposing you were to use him in one of your books, Mr. Archer, how'd you wind things up for him? Have him live to a ripe old age, a contented old reprobate, running his face for a living? Perhaps, said Crispin slowly, giving it every appearance of thought. Perhaps I would, Sheriff, but it would be just as logical to shoot him full of holes in about the tenth chapter. And then somebody like me would have to figure out who killed him? Eh? Uh, Jarvis arose. Well, I'll be getting along, not as young as I used to be, and I need to get my sleep. I'll step out and say good night to Mr. Eric. The sheriff stepped so quickly that he couldn't possibly have heard Mr. Archer's assurance that it wasn't necessary to be so polite. He came out on the back porch just as Mr. Eric slipped the very muddy boot out of sight. He couldn't, however, hide the basin of murky water in which he had been removing the worst of the slime, and the sheriff glanced at it with a raised eyebrow. Some denizen ran me off the road tonight when I was walking back from the village. Franz explained grumpily, I only got a boot full of mud, but I might have been knocked flat. Well, now, that's too bad, the sheriff purred. We try to watch out for reckless drivers, my men do, but we sure don't get them all. Drop in and see me when you're in town, Eric. I'll make you acquainted with some of the town lads. You must find it pretty quiet here, a young fellow like you. I do all right, thanks just the same, Franz rejoined. He picked up the basin of muddy water and tipped it into the darkness. The sheriff took himself off with a good night. Doggedly he plodded back to the convent and came into the main corridor. When he had attended to his immediate errand, he would go over to the barnyard and have a chat with Burns. Mother Theodore's office was dark. Sister Osmond's a pale square in the light she always left on. At least they have confidence enough in me to retire to the cloister, he mused, and it's more than I have in myself, 
I wouldn't retire into a concrete dugout with any feeling of safety. Into the new gymnasium wing he went, then lightly up the stairs to Tovaldson's studio. At the landing he drew back. Thus far he had not come stealthily, yet even on the bare old stairs the artist had not heard him. In the barn-like room, Tor sat before his easel, so abandoned to his study of something on the drawing-board that he was disturbed by neither the sound nor the intuitive sensing of another person's presence. With two other images fresh in his mind, the sheriff watched him. Tor was not working, merely sitting in the armchair which he had pulled forward to a spot before the heavy easel. A strong light under an opaque shadow threw a glare on the drawing-board, and in the reflection the artist's face was a delineation in planes and shadows. Peaceful, that was the description that fitted. The round, plump face was a study in repose. The red-brown eyes were dark in the absence of light, thoughtfully serene, not fixed in a stare upon the drawing-board, but rather expressing a leisurely seriousness. The mouth was grave, relaxed, with a mobility that promised at any moment to cast aside the solemn mood. It was a face of great simplicity, given character by enjoyment of simple things, by the plain, uncomplicated sorrows which come to every man, no mark of bitterness or rebellion, but instead a deep contentment, and something else. Tor was thinking hard, so engrossed that he had not heard the sheriff's approach. His hair was pushed back in a wind-blown shag, and he wore a shirt printed in an oriental design, the collar open. He's a strong old gent, the sheriff thought, noting the muscular neck. He could pick up a girl and throw her bodily into the bayou. So could Archer. So could Eric. But was the casual, easy-going, negligent Archer a murderer? Or Franz, who could be charming even in a temper? Or this quiet, contented man who sat lost in thought over what? The sheriff moved and a board creaked under him. Immediately he stepped forward. Tor turned easily, almost as if he had been expecting a visitor. His smile was affable, guileless, not so expansive as to be irritating. Exactly right. I didn't hear you, Mr. Thatcher. Come in. I was sitting here meditating. There is so much to work out, and I find little spare time during the day. Push that canvas onto the floor and sit down. Jarvis unloaded the chair. If he sat where it was, he would be directly behind the easel, and therefore unable to see what was pinned to the drawing board. Carelessly, he swung the chair over near Tor, seated himself astraddle with his arms folded upon its back. Say, quite a place you've got here, Mr. Tovaldson. You know, I've never seen an artist at work before. A little bit out of my line, but mighty interesting. He laughed and let his eye be drawn to the glare of the drawing board. Upon it a pencil sketch was pinned, a dog upon a treadmill, and behind him a sea of faces, each face no more than a single line, but so expressive that the scene had life. The picture had been hastily done, but up in the right-hand corner there was another sketch, which had been lingered over, shaded and highlighted into a perfect portrait. "'Theophilus Burns!' the sheriff exclaimed. "'That's him to the life. How did you ever get him to pose for you?' He didn't know he was posing. I sketched him this afternoon while he was giving his demonstration. A wonderful bit of vanishing Americana. 
Old Theophilus, Jarvis murmured. It's hard to believe he won't turn around with that laugh of his and say something. Quite a fellow for the fast word, Burns is. The sketch is not that well done, Tolwitson said rather shortly, and he took up the drawing board and disappeared swiftly into the shadows with it. His voice came back, however, genial as ever. It's a habit with me to take notes, in a manner of speaking, on interesting faces. But this one is hardly worth keeping. Now here's something I think you may like, Sheriff. She posed for me this morning. Tor returned and set the study of Nerissa as a red-haired, green-eyed angel in the strong light. The mural was his pet subject, and a nod or two from the sheriff sufficed to carry him along. But Jarvis's ponderings concerned the pencil sketch about which Tor had protested too much. Was it so insignificant, when it could hold a man spellbound, as it had the artist? And what was the errand which had brought the churn man seeking Tor at the guest house? Jarvis listened managing an air of sober interest remarkable for one whose main appreciation of art was for laying wolves and leaping deer on calendars. I see, he nodded in reply to Tor's dissertation on symbolism. There's a good deal more to a picture than the paint, sir. I'm afraid, though, that I'd have the wrong attitude toward my work, granted the talent in the first place. Yes, I'm afraid I couldn't bear to part with a picture after I put in all this thought and planning on it. I just want to sit and look at it. Tor shrugged. Detachment has not been hard for me to learn, Mr. Thatcher. I never have felt that I painted with my lifeblood. While I am painting, the picture occupies my whole mind, until I bring it to whatever perfection is possible for me. Then I sell it. The check is in my pocket. Finis. I do not indulge in sentimentality. The best way, I'm sure, the sheriff agreed. But Tor indulged in other sentimentalities, calling himself an old man, for instance. Well, I mustn't keep you too late, Mr. Tolwitson. I'll be looking forward to another chat. Oh, by the way, about when did you come up here tonight? Sometime before dark? Tor picked up the portrait from the easel, answering absently. I came up immediately after dinner, about seven o'clock. Why, Sheriff? No reason to ask, really. One of the girls fell down some stairs and ran into a door. I wondered if the commotion had disturbed you. The artist touched the hair of the portrait and rubbed the wet paint between his fingers. So something else has happened. Although Jarvis waited, Tor only stood there, rubbing his fingers together, his plump cheeks sagging a little, and the oriental figures on the shirt pathetically bright. Who was it, this time, Sheriff? Mary Elizabeth Melville. Cracked a rib, the doctor says. Well, I'll be moving along. Sheriff? Jarvis stopped in the door. Tor's face was pale now, and he made an obvious effort to speak naturally. Was anyone with her? Yes, now that you speak of it, there was another girl. Trillian Pierce. But she wasn't hurt? No, it seems like she wasn't. Well, good night, Mr. Tobolson. Don't stay up too late. Oh, say, when Burns comes along, show him that picture you made of him and Taffy. He'd be proud. The artist's eyes came up to meet the sheriff's. For only a second could Jarvis read the strange display of remorse, or was it pity, before the mask fell, and Tor stood rubbing the wet paint between his fingers. 
Clattering down the stairs, Jarvis halted on the floor below. The old place echoed like a well. Any sound from above would be clearly heard. But there was none. The sheriff went quietly on down and out to his car in the parking lot. Wake up, fella, he said to Pete Jenkins, snoring in the front seat. Got a chore for you. Pete was awake on the instant. Okay, chief, always on my toes. Yeah, well, tiptoe in there and keep an eye on Tolvetson. He'll be coming down from his studio any minute now. Escort him home. Let him know you're on the job. I'll send somebody out to relieve you in a couple of hours. Pete departed, and the sheriff continued on toward his next goal. But he saw before he reached the barnyard gate that his errand was to be fruitless. The churnman's truck was gone, and now Theophilus Burns, having disappeared, was more than ever intriguing. In three instances he had been mentioned tonight. High Muckleroy implied he had scared Glory and the kids with some wild tale. He had visited Archer, asking for Tor, and stayed to furnish Archer with an alibi, and he had been portrayed by Tolvetson minutely, as if careful study had been made of that unattractive visage. Why? the sheriff spoke softly aloud. And where is the connection, if any, between all these whys and the fact that Helen resembled Trillium? Well, we'll hunt up Burns and get a few answers. Tom, asleep against the fence with Vanty tucked under him, as she had sheltered Tom himself when he was a chick, craned his neck and gobbled. Jarvis took a quiet departure. As he trudged back to his car, the chapel clock struck twelve. End of chapter 13